I kind of liked just not recording and talking, but apparently, That's also fun. apparently when you do a podcast, you have to only talk to each other when you're recording. That's true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if we talk to each other outside, we'll ruin all of our topics. Yeah. What if we created a podcast that wasn't recorded? Well, if, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to record it, can you make a podcast of it? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, technically the reverberations will uh, pass through the earth and the energy is not, you know, created or destroyed. So that energy will end up in, in the background audio of a podcast somewhere. So you're saying that there's a tree falling in a forest somewhere and it is being heard by probably tens of people right now. It's being heard by us. It's in the cosmic background noise. I see. So it, this could this tree could have fallen maybe, you know, thousands of years ago. Yes, indeed. As do all things. Whoa, that was deep. I'm going to go put a sign on my door to tell people not to come in. <laughs> okay. Now I just feel really depressed. <laughs> uh, you know, it happens. <laughs> so how are you doing, Kit? Um, well, a little less happier than before, I guess. <laughs> uh, but... I'm doing okay. Um, I had a lot of work to do when I got back from nationals, unfortunately, and now I'm oh, yeah, uh, instead of, instead of doing work work, I'm doing now uh, work to prepare for Northwest champs this week. So, mm. yeah, great idea to have two giant competitions <laughs> within t- two weeks of each other. But uh, you know, should be fun. Yeah, I mean, I was tr- gonna try to make it out to that, but then it was just a lot of travel. So, oh t- yeah, totally. Yeah, and I. I think last year, because last year we ha- had a 170 people attend or something mm-hmm. around there, um, and it looks like we're going to be down at least 50 from the previous year, but mm. I think a lot of that is due to the fact that we had a lot of travelers last year, and Nats was a lot earlier last summer. So. Yeah. Yeah, but it still should be fun. It's a lot It's a lot more relaxing doing the planning this time around, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I uh, forgot to record with you yesterday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, I, my bad. Yeah, um, no worries. I wasn't planning for it to be a really busy day, but it kind of ended up like that. And by the time I got like back from everything I was doing, I just wanted like I wasn't thinking of like anything. I was like, okay, I'm done with all the stuff for today. But I wasn't, because mm-hmm. um, I had been. I'm working on uh, for my for school. There's I'm in the film program kind of, but in order okay. to get into like the actual film program, I have to like reapply for the actual major itself. Of course, uh, and even yeah. if I if I don't get into that, I can also like there's like other ones that I don't have to apply for that I can default into basically. Um, mm-hmm. But since this one major is so like impacted, you have to apply for it separately. So, as a part of that uh, application, you have to put together a little portfolio which has like you know some essays, information about yourself, and a example of work which has to be a series of like six to twelve images like photographs that tell a story. Seems interesting for a film school to have still images, but... Uh, I, I think the idea is to get pe- make sure people are thinking um, in terms of, like, using the full, uh, like, tools they have available to you. Because, like, what we're doing right now is all audio. So if you're relying on all audio to tell a story, it might as well just be um, a podcast or something. Uh, whereas if you're going into film specifically, you want they want to make sure you know how to use the visual aspect. Because that's harder to tell a story with, but can be much more effective. So I'm pretty sure, sure that's what they're going for. Okay. Um, well, you know more than I do, <laughs> so I'll, I'll give it to you. And I thought, well, you know, it'll be funny and, like, maybe a little bit unique or original is to sort of tell a story instead of being about, like, people, to have it be about my cat. Oh, okay. Which I still think is a good idea, but it's very difficult in practice to get a cat to cooperate for pictures. 
Um, yeah, in my experiences, cats don't really respond to pictures very well. No, they don't. No. They don't really really respond to much. They don't. Uh, my cat is. She is particularly, I think, easy to work with as far as cats go, because mm-hmm. she basically just loves being around people and she'll just like come running and stuff. But getting her to like look in the right direction and things like that. And lately, we've been trying to like get her behind some food, looking up to the side like sitting on a stool and we've managed to get every every shot that we wanted except for that one and that is just we've spent like uh my mom sophie and i were all working on this yesterday and today and yesterday we spent like two hours or something trying to get this shot today we spent like another three hours for it and we still just haven't gotten her to sit still and look in the right direction but it's (laughs) So it's like we're just we're just like messing with her, uh, the cat, and we're like, okay, is it here? Here, I'll give you food. And it's like it's just a constant like back and forth between like, oh, now we're annoying her, but now she's getting extra food, and like, and so she keeps like getting annoyed and running away, and then coming back. <laughs> Has your cat developed anxiety in this process? Not that I can tell. In fact, she seems to like forget the entire thing has happened. Like. After, if we take, like, a 15-minute break, she'll just be acting, like, completely normal. Like, she gets really, like, suspicious of us and stuff when we're trying to do all this to her. But then she just comes right back after, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> Alrighty. That's... <sighs> Cats. Yeah, so that was one of the things I was doing yesterday. Um, and another one which sort of ties into a topic is I was getting a thing 3D printed at the library downtown. Oh, exciting. You got one of those libraries with the low-end 3d printer they lying actually, around they actually have some it's like the downtown library in san diego and it's pr- like really big and oh, they have okay. i think like four or five 3d printers hmm. Man. um some of them are low-end but they have a couple like really good ones actually and is the cost all right or it is free actually whoa yeah it's really cool you want to make some clock covers for me <laughs> i probably could actually yeah nice <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i was yeah, just yeah. thinking we have that as a topic later to talk about 3D printing for cubing, but... Nice. Um, yeah, I was printing a piece for a board game that we lost. <laughs> so I was oh. like, I oh, know, I'll design my own and make another. And then I printed it, and it doesn't look quite right, like it doesn't quite match the other pieces, but I've redesigned it and stuff, and I'm going to go get another one 3D printed, so... I mean, cool. why not? It's free. Yeah, they have a suggested <laughs> donation, which I'll probably do, because, you know... Oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. But you don't, you really don't have to, and it's really cheap compared to other things, like... It's a dollar mm-hmm. per hour of printing, whereas hmm. like any online service is going to be like $5 or something or more oh, per totally, hour of printing. Yeah. So it's really cheap comparatively. Yeah, the main, thing I've, the main thing I've gotten 3D printed are like the button protectors on stack mat timers. Mm, really? I haven't seen those. I don't yeah, think. They, were out, they were on all of the Nationals timers. Really? Yep. Huh. <laughs> That's weird. Or were th- are they just kind of like little O-ring things? Do they look like O-rings? Would I just... They're tr- more triangular because they give you some little spots to super glue them onto the timers. Okay. Um, they're they're f- all, they're literally the Speedstacks design. Like Speedstacks actually created a three D print of this little button protector. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I just downloaded their three D print file because I have no idea how to design stuff, <laughs> and I just uploaded it to some, um, you know, kayak of three D printing website and <laughs> sent me over. I think like a hundred of them. Maybe yeah, even more nice. than that for like twenty to thirty bucks or something. Yeah. So, I mean, which, it, it's getting pretty cheap, really. Yeah, I mean, 
a dollar an hour sounds a lot cheaper than what I paid for those yeah, tiny I'm sure little it is. things. But yeah, <laughs> for reference, the little thing I printed it was like a inch by a half inch by a half inch. Okay. Uh, and that w- was like a twenty minute print. All right. And I mean, I was doing some research after that just because I was interested, not actually like going to buy a three D printer, but I just kind of wanted to see like how much does it cost and stuff like that. And it seems like you can get some decent low end ones for, I don't know, like couple hundred bucks maybe 300 which is expensive but it's not ridiculous it's kind of like yeah. how printers were like it's but aren't, just normal the, aren't printers. the materials pretty expensive too though it's it's not that bad like the dollar an hmm. hour thing that's basically about just to cover the cost of materials oh, um wow. okay yeah so it's really not not that expensive interesting yeah i'm ho- kind of hoping that like within i don't know 10 years or 20 years or something they'll be just as common as like normal printers are you just see them everywhere. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Uh, I would definitely be a lot easier to have like clock covers and yeah. uh, O-ring protectors. Yeah, it would be GFE. so much easier to just make anything. Like anytime you think of the little thing you need, you can just print it. Right. And also puzzle development too. Yeah, that would be super just, cool. It'd be really cool to have more people, you know, doing their own sort of puzzle design. I mean, of course, a lot of people like to, there's a lot of people already out there that design, um, you know, you know random other unique puzzles they've invented but it'd be really cool to kind of get a proof of concept for you know like other types of just like three by threes even yeah i know that um, uh albert u cubics did I that i was just about yep. to bring that up <laughs> <laughs> um yeah because he did that yeah in 2013 um yeah, many CX3. of our listeners yeah the, our listeners might not even know what that thing is but albert u did design a cube in 2013 and maru <laughs> oh yeah i forgot it was maru yeah, it was a Maru cube. Like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the only thing they're known for at this point is lube by the yeah. majority of cubers, but they did make cubes. Yeah, I remember I had a Maru 4x4. It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was good at the time. Yeah. But, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, cube, cubes have gotten insane in the past five years. It's yeah, they really ridiculous. Have. But, yeah, people could 3D print, like, their own cubes and like I, I was it would be so cool to be able to like when you think of say you want, like thought of something along the lines of like adding magnets to a cube or you thought of a new magnet pattern you could try like like you could scan in a piece that already exists and modify it slightly even that would be pretty cool like you could add spots for magnets or something i don't know like yeah. like an actual design i don't know i was just, just sort of spit but spit spit spitballing <laughs> spitballing <laughs> ideas <laughs> You, you mean you don't like to play the game of spitzball? <laughs> we we go spitzballing down the street for four hours every day. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> um. So time out. Uh, we didn't actually do the things you need to say <laughs> at the beginning every time you dimwits. <laughs> no, there's nothing we can do that will make us remember this. <laughs> There's a section in our show notes for everyone at home. So normally what we had in our show notes was title. And whenever we like come up with something during the episode that we think would be a good title, we throw it in there. (laughs) Then we had check-in. This is what we normally have. Check-in is just like, you know, whatever. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Then follow-up. Then the normal topics, right? Um, Oh, and I guess there's a section for reg of the day that you didn't fill in and you just threw the reg of the day in the topics instead. Oh, but, is there actually a section now? Yeah, I guess there oh. is, apparently. Oh. <laughs> um, 
but we forgot to use that. Oh, and there's also homework if we assign ourselves any homework at the end. But since we kept forgetting to like introduce the show and mention our subreddit, Kit added a section brilliantly titled, Things You Need to Say at the Beginning Every Time, You Dimwits. I think it's very appropriately titled. Yeah, yeah. we forgot again. <laughs> <sighs> well, you know, maybe we should put this after checking. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. That kind of... Uh, I don't know. So... I think it would probably be best if we start introducing the show by like, hello, welcome to Layer by Layer, and you can find our subreddit. Subreddit. I can't speak. I cannot speak. I was having this problem in the other podcast I was recording with my girlfriend a couple days ago. Um, we, we, we played a spitch ball down by the subreddit. <laughs> we got our subreddit layer by layer. <laughs> our intro's done. We're good. There's a sub. There's a shrub reddit um, for shrubberies. Wait, and... is that a? I have to see if this is a thing now. The shrub reddit. <laughs> There's a reddit. shrub reddit called That's... the shrub reddit. Yeah. Please. Um. Yep. There. Yep. There's only f- only four users. Uh, 318 Three, subs. But there is a. You mean 319 sh- subs? <laughs> um <laughs> yes uh, yes i do mean 319 <laughs> subs guess who just subscribed our shrub reddit <laughs> i mean if you're gonna say it you might as well subscribe to it yeah i mean shrub scribe to it so andrew yeah how's that uh camp class been going oh yeah well that was just for a week so it's done now um, okay well how did it go it went quite well. It was sort of a broad range of like students I was teaching. Okay. Um, and I had one week basically to try to help the people who already knew how to cube to cube better um, or learn new things. Like I taught one one of the kids there, I taught him how to solve it blindfolded and like mega minks and pyraminx and all sorts of different things. And then there was also a bunch who didn't know anything about cubing and I had to teach them how to solve it and I had a week. And I got through, got to do it for most of them. But some of these kids were like six years old, so it was it wasn't possible to get all of them completely caught up and no, like totally. completely learned in just one no, week. But it came it was surprisingly easy with um with that like really simple method that the cubicle has on their YouTube channel. They also mm-hmm. had like a PDF of that. Um, right, right. So I took that. I made some modifications to make it even simpler. Um, <laughs> so you just, were literally just spamming sexy moves all the time. Pretty much sef- sexy and left sexy. Um, right right yeah but yeah and i made some modifications that also made it even easier to follow like not really as far as what you're actually doing for the method but like how to set up cases Mm -hmm. um like when you're inserting the second layer edges and stuff like instead of just like the way they have it i think is you line up the front color with the center okay and then you do like a u or a u prime just as then you memorize that as like an algorithm Mm -hmm. Um, but what i figured out is you can line up the top color with with its side the U, the U face color of that edge, oh. do a U two, and then rotate to the other color, and then just look if it needs to go to like the right or the left, and then do the what Ooh. I was calling the righty move because you know I can't call it the sexy move with like six year olds, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> you know it's funny because I don't even think about that anymore. I don't that either. Move, yeah, it's like, just I I probably say sexy move around small children <laughs> all the time without realizing it, but it's so ingrained yeah. into cubing vocabulary. Uh, and then like someone who overhears you saying like sexy sledgehammer and they're like, what's going on? Well, that's, that's some real kinky stuff going on right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was pretty cool. 
as nice. far as whether yeah, or not we I, were talking about though that this yeah. weird method that you wanted to teach yeah basically once i got there i was like that's not gonna work there are too many kids here so <laughs> totally yeah, yeah what, so you said as young as six but like were you you had the high schoolers there too, yeah or? there was like okay. two high schoolers um like four oh probably more than that more than that um probably like five or six middle schoolers and then a bunch of grade schoolers and some like yeah all the way down to like six so who was the one, was it a high schooler that was getting into, like, Megaminx and Blind and stuff like that? Or? No, actually, the high, well, there's two. One of them was actually quite fast already, and I basically oh, okay. just helped him. He was mostly interested in 3 by 3 so I just, like, taught him some COLLs and some more interesting kind of, like, F2L algs, like, using e-commutators and stuff, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is cool and people should learn. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, that was about... It for that it was one of the middle schoolers who i taught like blind and mega minx and stuff oh cool so you had a pretty wide range of skills coming into this then yeah yeah definitely and that was nice. fortunately they were somewhat separated and ter- through like throughout the day there was four groups so the different groups sort of had different like uh you know sort of median skill levels so i was able to separate them out a bit oh nice yeah cool were you doing this alone then yeah, I had a bit of help from the other people who worked there who were just sort of um, more general, like, overseeing stuff. Um, right, right. Like, during the busiest one, one of them took over, and, like, I taught him the steps, and then he started mm-hmm. teaching other people. Oh, that's very helpful. Yeah, because he was an adult. He picked it up, like, you know, pretty much instantly. Sure. The And then he started working with some of the littlest kids on the... That's just, nice. like, getting like, yeah. the very first step kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's... I, I, I can tell you I've done workshops like that before with very differing groups of people. Uh, and mm-hmm. it's really hard just because you'll have one person who just, so, you know, or more than one person that just soaks up a lot of your attention. And yeah, you just yeah, for can't sure. get around it. You can't get around to everybody. I was doing the best I could to make sure I was like kind of jumping around between people as much as I could. Um, and a lot of that was it was helpful to take it really slow um, yeah. and be like, okay, you did this one step, and now I want to see you do it again, all on your own. If you have to ask me something, we can't move on, that sort of right. thing. Um, totally. And for the most part, I, I felt like it would maybe be frustrating to some of them, but it seemed like they were doing all right. So, Cool. Yeah, it actually, everyone everyone there was, even the ones who didn't specifically like sign up for the cubing part of the thing, because mm-hmm. there was like a whole bunch of things, and then they just, some people just sort of signed up for the camp in general and were like, un, like they didn't assign themselves to anything. So, okay, yeah. They just gave some of those to me for cubing. And even those ones, they none of them really seemed to be frustrated by it or anything. They were all pretty into it. Nice. Well, cool. Yeah. Sounds like a good experience. Yeah. You get any of them to come to a competition soon? or? Uh, yeah, actually a couple. Some of the ones oh, nice. who like, already knew cubing and I taught like some CFOP to people. So some of awesome. those I was like, yeah, you should look into some competitions. And actually the two high schoolers, they kind of want to organize a competition now. Oh, um well, so i might probably be should go to one first if they haven't already. they have they've been to competitions oh okay, okay. yeah <laughs> yeah so or one of them had at least or something uh okay. so i might be helping them with that at some point i don't know i gave them my contact information but nice <laughs> yeah cool so i brought up not last episode but a couple episodes ago since we didn't follow up at all last episode right um i brought up this sort of math problem uh an fmc not fmc uh just a, like a move count based yeah four by four i think was the example i used yeah that was all sort of you know i was just making that up on the fly um (laughs) but the idea is it's um 
If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Otherwise, I'm going to spoil it for you. It's sort of a riddle. So basically the idea was that you're doing like a solve at a certain TPS for the first half. And then the question was, how, what TPS do you need on the second half to achieve like your target time? And the more classic way to set up this sort of riddle is to say you're in a race car going around a racetrack. Or, no, or not to hit a target. Was it to hit a target time? Or to hit a target TPS? Something like that. Um, but sort of the classic way is you're in a race car going around a track. Um, you're doing two laps. The first lap you do at 30 miles per hour. And how fast do you need to go on the second lap to average 60 miles per hour? And also I think it's important that it's a one-mile track. Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. right. And the somewhat surprising answer, somewhat unintuitive, I think, answer is that it's impossible. Because... Mm-hmm. On that first lap, going at 30 miles per hour, that takes you two minutes to go around the full lap. Now, if you were to average 60 miles per hour for both laps, you would have to do it all in two minutes total, so you used up all your time on the first lap. Um, And that's just because the way rates work is somewhat unintuitive. Mm Mm-hmm. Because right, they are because they're they're yeah. inversely proportional rather than proportional in this yeah. case. Yeah. There's yeah. it's not purely multiplicative. Yep. So uh even though I don't remember the specifics of the problem I came up with, that's also the answer to that. It's impossible because you've used up all your time in the first half of that solve. Right. So you'd have to turn essentially the rest of the cube in zero seconds. Yep. Yep. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> seems seems plausible. I think I can do it. <laughs> Woo! Riddles with Andrew. That's that's what that segment's called. <laughs> I'll let you know when the next one is. Probably never. Yeah. <laughs> we'll bring it back at some point, I imagine. So I'd like to offer a correction. Um, yes. In a previous episode, I uh, mentioned that uh, Max Shaw beat Kevin Hayes at a competition because Kevin Hayes uh, only does one color. Turns out Max Shaw also only solves one color for cross. So... In reality, Kevin Hayes just sucks. Yeah, or I thought... I Yeah, I guess that's probably the one way of interpreting it. Also, Max Shaw is pretty great. Yeah, I, I think it's more fun to make fun of Kevin, though. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Kevin sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, not to take... I don't mean to take away any credit from Max either, though. He, he did really well that day and definitely deserved the win. I don't mean to, like, discredit that or anything. I'm just... Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. For, I'm here for entertainment. My apologies. <laughs> Other follow up I'd like to cover oh, too. Okay, wait, wait. Before we get into this, oh, okay, I want to okay. make a statement. Okay. I don't know what I'm talking about, and I recognize that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's totally true. The other thing is, my Jeker cube is absolute terribly. It's awful. Like, um, yeah. Is it defective, though? Um, well, I don't know about, like, the magnet noise or anything, but when I turned Matt's, like, it sounded the same. Okay. Yeah, that's so, what I thought. So that was the part yeah. where I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you I have must, no clue I was, what you're talking about. I was just using that in, like, a loud environment, so I guess I didn't notice, or maybe I'm just not right. sensitive at all to cube noise. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the since then, is... I've seen lots of people complaining about the noise. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. I'm not crazy. Yeah. Great. <laughs> all right. Number two. That cube has some of the worst quality control I've ever seen. Uh, okay. Like, so I cannot do three consecutive solves without it misdetecting oh, no. a move. So I guess it is defective. <laughs> yeah, it, it is defective, but not for the reasons you were thinking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, 
I'm not really even sure if I want to order a new one. Have you have you heard like other stories about other people's who's having? Yeah. yeah, Chris Olson's was having the same issue too. Mm. Um, I don't think he's gotten as bad as mine. I've I mean I've used mine a lot, which you know when you buy a cube, you kind of hope to use it. Yeah, maybe uh, especially typically. one that has yeah especially one that has these kind of cool electronics and stuff going on in it. So I don't know. It was. Um, it was great initially. Very rarely did it have any of these move detection issues, but um, now it's absolutely insane how often it misses moves. And yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I I am at this point just waiting for GoCube and hoping that that is a higher quality. GoCube is so much more expensive, though. It's bound to be better, I would hope. I, I mean, I sure hope. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, plot, I plot my money down for the, the whatever yeah. the top, the, like, elite model was <laughs> forget the actual name they use but i'm just gonna be waiting until march for that to come out yeah uh, i think that it seems like they're actually really putting a lot of like effort and thought into it as well as the app mm-hmm. yeah the apps are seeming like an afterthought on the jeker cube mm-hmm. they're really really weird yeah it seems i think uh lucas garen has been like talking a lot with the go cube people and suggesting things because he's been writing all the software for the jeker cube Right, and uh, it, uh, he posted like a message to uh, to Facebook from them saying that they're interested in having him like help develop some of the stuff. Yeah, with their which cube, so. that would be super cool because he right. knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it's just nice to have a community voice involved in this. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't look at all to our community when they were selling this cube. I guess maybe their goal was to try to sell it more to the general public rather mm-hmm. than to um you know actual speed cubers but mm-hmm. there's definitely an interest in these sort of products so i don't know, found it kind of weird that this is the first involvement we get is like after the kickstarter is already well yeah. underway yeah that's it is a bit strange um i i feel like there might be more sort of like behind the scenes like do we who who are the people making it are they like speed cubers no no it's not- it's uh some israeli engineers hmm yeah um i think engineers or computer scientists or some yeah i don't know the, i i i noticed that they're from israel and they posted a video of where they got some israeli speed cuber to come in and try the product which definitely made it seem like they didn't have a speed cuber on their mm. team um so but they did post a video because a lot of people when they saw the cube they're like this thing isn't going to turn well at all and well, turns out that, you know, he did a video of him solving it. And, you know, it may not be the best turning cube out there, but it definitely looked like a decent speed cube, at least from the video. Yeah, certainly useful for a lot of things. I mean, for me, I'm definitely most excited for um, streaming FMC. Not that I I've agree. streamed in a while. Yeah. Uh, but the ability for it to track the rotations, just right now with my Jaker cube, and this is kind of the reason I don't plan on getting a new one. I have to be like rotating my phone screen all the time mm-hmm. to get it to like you know detect any moves and or to detect my rotations. I mean, and it's a pain. Like it just doesn't even feel like I'm really doing FMC at all anymore. It just feels like I'm kind of doing a demonstration. Yeah, it's more like a walkthrough. <laughs> yeah, I'd much prefer it to be more of me doing FMC and the technology is making it easier for people to watch what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to that, but. Um, until then uh i think i'm just gonna go back to old school fmc when i eventually go back to streaming i know it's been a long time uh if any of the listeners out there did watch my streams but um i promise i'm gonna get back into it soon it's been really busy recently though oh yeah for sure nationals kills 
Yeah, I was I was considering getting a Jiku cube, but I think that I wouldn't really ever use it. Just I mean the weird colors. Like I can't really think of a great use case for it for me actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's definitely was fun to play around with. I don't really regret getting one, but I'm very disappointed by how well it was made. I saw that they're being sold on um the cubicle now. Maybe speed oh, cube are shop. They? I don't I don't know for sure about speed cube shop, but I saw that definitely on the cubicle um some announcement about that. So I wonder if they're going to do any, like, additional quality control of their own. Otherwise, it yeah. seems like kind of a risky thing to sell. Totally, yeah. Because, I mean, if I bought it at the cubicle, I'd probably be like, hey, this one sucks. Send me a new one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But, I mean, it's definitely a low-quality product at least the one that I received. Matt's is holding up well, though, from yeah. what I've seen. I, I played around with his thing because I wanted to see how long it would take me for it to get a misdetected move. I did about 10-ish solves, and none were misdetected. <laughs> so it, it might just be that, you know, some of them are made well and some of them are not. I don't know. So, Kit, a few yeah. episodes ago, we were talking about, you know, the blindfolded world records. When Jeff got it back... The first time, I should specify, because he has it back again now. Right. But basically, we were talking about how we thought it was good because he totally deserves it. Like, he, we think he should have a record on the record books. But you said you were still rooting for, you know, Max Hilliard because he's your local guy. Well, guess what? It was like a week later or something. Max Hilliard gets the world record. Yep, that did happen. And, and then like a week later, Jeff gets the world record right, again. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, he only held it for a week. So, but he did get it again. Yeah, so... I just thought that was cool. You totally predicted that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, the thing with the, all of those people who are, you know, really into three blind right now is they're all capable of getting the record. It's gotten to the point where it is a matter of how many algs is the scramble. Yep. Uh, and... just a little, which is pretty weird. Like, I, it's, it's, it's weird how much blind is scramble based. It's probably more than almost any other event. It is literally just like the scramble is the... Like, that defines how good your solution can be. Two by two? Okay, that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely up there, but... Um... But but also, I think blind's even a little bit more so than two by two. Because two by two, you might not see something really good. Whereas with blind, you trace the cube in the same way every time. So you're going to see, like, everything. So yeah, the top people will a... see the cube kind of in the same way. There's still a giant chunk of the solve that's, you know, actual memo, and that takes a, a, just skill to be able to do quickly. Yeah. Granted, if you're at the top of your game, um, like, the top blind solvers all have roughly the same amount of memo, but it varies from solve to solve greatly. Mm -hmm. um, so, to some extent, there is a lot of skill that goes into getting very oh, yeah. consistent no, and I'm fast memo. Yeah, I'm not Which, saying there's not a lot of skill. I'm just saying that I feel like it still is a more scramble-dependent event than it seems at first. I agree. I definitely don't think it's more scramble-dependent than 2x2, two two, though. Yeah, that's true. I mean, at least on the very low end of scrambles, like the really easy ones. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, uh, like, I think that Lucas did some stats, L Lucas Garen again, uh, he did some stats on how many people have an official single below the world record average. Oh, yeah, and two in by a two given is event. ridiculous. Yeah, two by two is insanely high compared to, it's, I think, five times higher at least than any other event. But on sort of a, in terms of, like, the most skilled people, mm -hmm. I feel like blind is more scramble dependent than two by two. Yeah, it is surprisingly scramble dependent. So, I'll definitely so like, that. 
like for everyone in general, yeah, it's like blind, you need the skill. You can't mm-hmm. just get a lucky single. But mm-hmm. at, as far as like if you're just comparing like the top 10 of both events, I feel like the the blindfolded uh, people are going to be more scramble dependent than the two by twoers. I mean, you basically need a four mover to break two by two single world record. Yeah. Or even to get, you know, you know, a good, uh, you could probably get sub one on a five or six mover, but to get a good solve, like that's close to the world record time, you need a four mover. Jeff's world record recently was terrible. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That scramble was awful. Okay, but like, what about like what about this though? You get the top ten two by twoers. You give each of them a different scramble and then see who wins. Versus, you get the top ten blinders. You give each of them a different scramble and see who wins. I feel like the scramble is going to matter more for blind. I disagree. I think two by two it matters more. Hmm. I think that there's enough variation in memo times that the person with the best scramble might have a tracing error or just it doesn't stick as quickly. There's I think a lot of variability that is not dependent on the scramble okay. still in blind That's compared true. to two by two. That's true. I don't know. I, I, s- it's it's definitely an interesting debate. Uh, I'm curious if what other people think, but personally, I think it's definitely two by two. Okay. Way more luck dependent. I feel like maybe now, but I feel like in the future, blind will get get there. If, yeah, if definitely. It isn't already. It's a lot um, easier to hit the skill ceiling for two by two than it is true. to, to yeah. hit it for three blind. And over time, it could become, you know, at the level where there's just so many good three by three and blind solvers. And they're so consistent at memo that the point I'm making here is completely irrelevant at that point. Yeah. So uh, did you see that? Uh, I think it was Jay Park posted something about how there was like a six alg WCA scramble once. Yep. Yeah, that was actually posted uh, last year, too, by, by oh, someone yeah. who did the exact same analysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's super cool. And then Jake Klassen or something, he posted that he, like, got, like, got five-second execution or something, like a sub-10, yeah. 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 <laughs> Which, that would be really yeah, that funny. Was, and I posed an interesting question in that thread, is that if you get a scramble like that, is it better? Like, would who would be faster? A blind solver doing three style execution or a normal solver doing CFOP execution? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a rare case when you get something that good that you could probably do better with blind execution. Right. Oh, and, and the thing is, for a lot of those blind solvers, like they solve a three by three normally at best, usually around nine seconds. Mm-hmm. It's like they're no Felix. And on that scramble, they're getting fives in terms of execution. Especially if yeah. you float the buffer to make it five outs. So that could be a, that could be a situation where the the people who do like the blind for during normal three by three, they actually get like a huge advantage on that solve. <laughs> right, and yeah, I almost wonder too if you have someone who is really good at three by three and blindfolded, um, if you know they take a peek and if they notice there's a lot of solve pieces, hmm. do they abandon? Huh. and do freestyle <laughs> how i wonder like at what point does it become like where would their average have to be i guess it would just depend on what they average in both events and then they could sort of make that judgment call right it, it would probably come down to the number of algs yeah um, but the thing is like if you're going to start doing a memo and determining how many algs it is there goes your inspection and good luck trying to switch back to cfop if it turns yeah. out to be like 10 algs i guess what i would do is like if I were in this situation, is just like quickly scan the cube, be like, oh, there's like ten solved. Pe- that's a lot. There's yeah. like five solved pieces. 
And then right. in that case, maybe just like commit to the blind memo if you're fast right. enough. Yeah, I guess you don't. You just make the commitment not based on number of alex because that takes too much time to figure it out, but just based on number of solved pieces. Yeah, and then in that way, you you like these these people have like eight second memo or something, so you have a decent amount of time to figure out how much is solved. Right, and the thing is, you don't even need to fully memo it in inspection. That's true. Either. If, if, if you, you can could... recognize quickly enough, which I feel like would slow you down a bit. Yeah, it sure helps to have the full memo because then you don't have to pause at all, and that's yeah. kind of the point of three style. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, for most of them, they can easily fit in a memo under in inspection. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know, kind of interesting. Yeah, we got some feedback about Daniel Rose Levine. Uh, it was a lot in terms of his uh, ability and feet. And one of the main sources, because we were kind of asking, like, how this guy gets so good, uh, turns out it was because his right hand was inoperable for some time and thus just started practicing feet. Or maybe it was his left hand, and that's why he couldn't even do OH2. Maybe. I can't remember. There was definitely a re- He got to a point where literally the only event he could practice was feet due to an injury. I don't know if it was the only event he could practice, but it was, like, the only thing he could do comfortably or something. Yeah, or, because I know I know th- I think he was still like competing in other events. It was just he wasn't able to like practice them without injuring himself or something. Right. Yeah. Don't know that the makes details. Uh, yeah. I'm a little bit offended that you skipped over my pun uh, when you introduced this subject. I I totally said feet back. Did you say feet back? I didn't. You didn't really like you know enunciate. Yeah, it like I didn't. British I don't think I enunciated do. it, feet but back. I like I definitely read off the show notes, and I'm pretty sure I just read it as is because I'm kind of tired right now. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, feet back. Yeah. So I guess is that better? Was that a better enunciation? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I so I guess the reason he's so good is that well he practices like a ton. And then all of a sudden that practice all got condensed into just feet instead of being like every event. Right. And I don't think there's many people out there that dedicate their entire practice sessions to feet. <laughs> That's true. Um, um, especially ones that already have a lot of three by three skill like DRL and knows yeah. a lot of advanced sets for three by three. Yes, and things that was like that, that was another part of the feedback um, yeah. <laughs> was that. Daniel knows, like, a ton of algs. Like, more than yeah. Jabari, they said. And Jabari is, you know, classically, Jabari. we just reference him as Jabari. Right. <laughs> and we know what we mean. We mean he knows a lot of algs. And if Daniel knows more than him, that's insane. Right. And, yeah, it, people that do 3x3 three three that intensely probably don't usually spend as much time on feet. Yeah. So it kind of adds up how the uh, skill gap has occurred. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where on um like the Nats prediction sheet, did you did you do that that I think Daniel Shepard made? Oh, yeah, yeah, I I didn't do it, but I saw that the question for feet was who gets second in feet. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> because... and one, it was one of the answers was Daniel for yeah. getting second, and but you got like so many points if you predicted that because it's so unlikely. Um, oh right, right. Yeah, yeah and it was, depending... it was the same for Mega with a uh, yeah. Pablo. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, it was the way the sheet works was you got a certain amount of points depending on the person you pick. So if you picked like the favorite, you wouldn't get many points if you were right. But if you picked a sort of upset, then you would get a lot more points. So yeah, Daniel Rose Levine was worth a lot of points for feet because we were asking for second place. Yeah. It was basically guaranteed he'd get first. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I think they were talking about how like the, because we haven't had feet since 2015. Um, the nationals record 
not national record, oh. but nationals record for mm-hmm. feet was awful. Really? I mean, compared you know to DRL, was? like, uh, it was in the mid thirties. I'm pretty sure. Which I mean, it's not awful, but um, comparatively awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I think Daniel's first solve was pretty bad, and it was still like new nationals <laughs> record. Yeah. Probably by like yeah. ten seconds. <laughs> It'd be cool if we started officially tracking that more. I would like now, to see that. And world's yeah. records. Just just right. add more like um more abbreviations for WR and now it can mean <laughs> world record, world rank, or world's record. <laughs> well, it's nice for, you know, the Olympics because they just do OR or Olympic record. That's true. So we need to kind of come up with something similar to that. The problem is like another thing you think is like a cha- a type of like championship record, but we already have CR for continental <laughs> records, so uh, um Hmm. World Cubing Olympics 2019. <laughs> now we can use uh, Olympic record. Yeah. WCR? World Championship record? Mm, that's not a bad one. And then also NCR? Like a, a, yeah, National Championship record. Yeah. It'd be kind of weird to track these, but I think it'd be kind of cool too. Yeah. It's also, there's also like that unofficial official, or what is it? It's the unofficial official world champion or whatever. Um, oh yeah do you know that where it's yeah. like yep whoever won the first worlds uh in that event whenever they've been beaten the title quote-unquote title passes on to whoever beat them yep and so yep. on yeah <laughs> i think it was originally being just tracked for fmc but then someone went back and figured it out for all the other events uh, it was i think it was tracked for just about every event for a really? while okay. yeah, yeah yeah but i think <laughs> so, maybe i just it, only heard of it through fmc because right. i became well, it briefly yeah <laughs> right well yeah because i think there was a post in the odd stats thread on speed solving or somewhere that requested this sort of history and i think it was like 2014 or 2015 when it started to be tracked and then people have just been kind of unofficially tracking it since then since so it's pretty easy to yeah keep up with that and the biggest for us like in my circle of friends is fmc one because it's what we practice and two because steven Zhu beat uh sebastian aru at worlds 2013 thus bringing it stateside mm. okay yeah yeah it's been uh, in the states has it left the states yet i think it did at worlds uh, 2017 okay. yeah that would make sense yeah um i know whoever had it in the u.s didn't go to worlds 2015 um but i think it was one of walker or mark that had it going mm-hmm. into worlds 2017 and neither of them won so i think it's back in europe now okay cool yeah <laughs> uh yeah it seems like these sort of world championship things like rarely pass off uh continents unless it, you know of a weird travel coincidence mm-hmm. or if there's a worlds yep so i i guess i guess big national and continental championships could also be a good candidate for people traveling from abroad yeah, like, that's true, too. Like, if Mega was ever in the U.S., Juan Pablo probably just took it back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a silly title, really, because in general, um, the unofficial official world champions coincide with the official world champions. And the only time they don't is when the randomly chosen unofficial official world champion doesn't go to Worlds. Well, also, like, in the time between Worlds. Right, in the time between worlds, it's kind of fun to track it, but it's kind of just arbitrarily held in the region that the winner of worlds was from. I think it's still an interesting thing, though, because anyone who's had it, it basically means they have either beaten a world champion or beaten someone who has beaten a world champion. Right, so and there's I think many that's more still people that have done that. 
Yeah. I, I still <laughs> think it's it's sort of interesting. But but yeah. also like especially if it does kind of get like close to reset at worlds every year or every mm-hmm. two years, then you've beaten a recent world champion. Mm-hmm. That sort totally. of thing. So I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's interesting. Obviously not a very uh statistically like it doesn't say much about the cubers, but I think it's still no. interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. So on episode one, was it where you ha- where you talked about regulation H one A as your reg of the day? Yeah, that was that was the multi blind one. Yes, right? submitting the number of cubes you want to attempt for multi. Yes, I was thinking recently about how multi isn't the only event where you can change your style based on like what you're trying to go for and what you know other people have or are trying to go for. So what I was thinking was this would also apply to blind events, but also FMC is where you can change your style based on what results, you know, other people already have because, because this is information that not everyone necessarily gets. Like you might not be aware of some solve that someone else got in a comp, whereas other people might. And then those other people could change their solving style to make it so that they're more likely to win based on that other result while you don't. So you're saying that in an FMC, in a competition with FMC, you should have the right to not have to tell anybody what your score on that solution was? Maybe. Or have it be that no one... Well, I guess that would probably not work because people could... Somebody's got to grade it. Yeah. So then maybe... Or maybe... Well, I guess they already are kind of publicly... Yeah, because I mean, somebody's... Right. I mean, there's at sometimes like it might not get posted in time before the next attempt. Yeah, um, that does happen. Um, so, I mean, maybe the opposite should happen and maybe it should be that results from previous FMC attempts should be like must like, be made publicly available before the next round or the next attempt. And I was also thinking for blind events, like if you're doing multi-blind, you could very easily miss what some other multi-blinder gets while you're doing your attempt. Like, if they finish in the middle of yours. So you have no idea what they get. They've already, like, left the room or whatever by the time you're done, and you never really find out what they got. Mm-hmm. Whereas that could definitely influence what you submit for the next attempt. Whereas others others in the room could get that information and gain a slight advantage. Yeah. I definitely don't... I think this is a hard... Would be a hard rule to enforce. I almost wonder if this is a guideline already. Hmm. Um, but it sounds more guideline-y um where like results should be made available before future attempts yeah um i think in practice this isn't a huge issue because in most cases i'm pretty sure they are made public kind of informally just because people people rarely hide what they did and and, and usually the people who are like in contention for winning or podiuming are going to be talking to each other anyway about their attempts right so i yeah i don't think that we really necessarily need to make a strict rule for this because that could be especially like a pbq style kind of competition where you have so many things back to back and you can get a little bit backlogged on grading or whatnot Mm -hmm. um i think it could be a little hard to keep up with that rule when in in practice most people are sharing this information anyways yeah i just thought it was something to consider because at nats i realized like i was sort of like trying to make sure i got around everyone and asked like what did you get what did you get that i could know how to sort of plan what i was doing of course i'm bad at fmc and i got nowhere close um (laughs) so it didn't really matter but there was i was kind of like i don't even know like what i'm trying to beat at at some points and i guess i could have looked it up online i didn't think of that (laughs) yeah they were all on cube comps before the next attempt yeah so strangely enough i did not also or i also did not 
peek at anyone's results really or was even remotely interested because i started with a 31 <laughs> uh but luku got second place yeah nice what? job <laughs> yeah that was uh unexpected <laughs> <laughs> I only started looking at scores after the third attempt when I turned yeah. in that bullshit 22 <laughs> and was then like, oh, crap, wait, what do I need to do to win or what needs to happen for me to win now? And basically I needed there were only really two people that had, you know, more likely than not odds of beating me. And that was Mark and Chris. Mm hmm. They both needed to get, uh, I believe, sub 30 to beat me. 30 would have tied the mean, but I would have had him on single. Um, so it was like, uh, 30 is too easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Never overestimate overestimate Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so Mark pulled through for me, but Chris did not. Um, the funny thing is, though, Chris said that, at least in his speed-solving thread, that uh, in, with like 15 to 20 minutes left, the only thing he had was 25 to 3. Yeah, I believe that. That last scrambled wasn't kind to me either. Yeah, I mean, I could see how, uh, but it was very, very kind to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it gave back in a magnificent way. <laughs> but yeah, so Chris apparently didn't even have a good skeleton until like 15 minutes left. So apparently I was pretty close. <laughs> yeah, very close. Yeah. The other thing that was frustrating, though, is that the first scramble that I did get a 31 on the solution i turned in was off 24 to three corners so 31 is kind of like oh yeah that's bad yeah yeah i mean well, it, it was it it was optimal so you know yeah it just sucks uh I, but, I, mine was similar i got a 29 off a 22 to three corners okay so same same cancellation i think yeah yep definitely so the bad thing though is um i was typing up my solutions to speed solving and I literally just did like a, oh, what if I added this one move at this part Ooh. and switched? Mm -hmm. I did it and immediately found 22 to 3. Ah. Uh, wonder if and it was the same thing. <laughs> it was not Chris's 22 to 3. Oh. And it was not your 22 to 3. What was um, it? Well, wait, was it optimal uh, 24? It was optimal 26. Oh, okay. Yeah, which was, that, the, so that was the, the same, same as Chris Chi. Yeah. Yeah. I know so, that um, Zach Zwirling, who wasn't competing, mm -hmm. but he was like doing the, the scrambles along with us. He yeah. found a twenty-two to three that gave him a twenty-four. <laughs> oh my god! So yeah, three C skeletons varied quite a lot on that scramble. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the frustrating thing, and you know, it at the same time, it's always a you know when you look back at anything FMC or any sort of three by any any event. There's always a, what if I did this? Or, yeah. you know, what if I saw this instead? But that 26 would have been enough to win Nationals. Mm. So, a little bit. It kind of stings a little, but... Wait, well, what do uh, you have had then? That would be a really good mean. Uh, it would have been 25. So that would have tied, tied to win. And then one off single. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. 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 So... Um, and I also missed one off optimal on my second one because I Ooh. was an idiot um, <laughs> and missed the first insertion that canceled four on my first pass through oh, no. and I had to rush the end. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, so if I, if I had not made those two mistakes, I would have had 26, 26, 22. Wow. 24.67. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, it happens. I'll have more means in the future. At least you didn't like miss a world record because you're getting right. close with those. <laughs> 
that would have hurt even more if you had. <laughs> Speaking of world records, uh, Heck, thinking, yeah, <laughs> good job, good job, I approve. <laughs> I thought my twenty-two on the third scramble was a world record for a little while <laughs> uh, because I had done a bunch of NIST stuff and I had done a bunch of like little tree branches for like different options at one point. And the three moves that I wrote were kind of off to the side as a result, like in these little branched pathways. Yeah. And so when I was putting the solution together, after I realized I found an LL skip, um, I was writing it down. I was like, that's 19 moves. <laughs> and I was like breathing heavily, like panting, like, holy, <laughs> holy, what is going on? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, And then like, I re- literally, I wrote on the scratch paper, the whole solution down to like, just check to see if it worked. Cause I didn't want to write it on the official sheet yet. Mm-hmm. Had plenty of time. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if I'm going to turn in a 19, I want it to look pristine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I do it, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't work. Whoops. <laughs> Look, it was really anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I, like, just start looking at my sheet, and I'm, like, trying to trace my moves. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of a bummer, too, because it's not even an... I mean, it is a tied PB single, but... Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. PR single. <laughs> Much better. You're welcome. I would be... I would be happy even if after missing a night or after thinking it was a 19 i'd still be happy with a 22 yeah i can tell you that i'd be a giant step happier if it were a 21 oh yeah just breaking the pr <laughs> yeah you know getting especially because 22 is like this giant cluster of people yeah. right now well i mean but you would ruin all of the 22 people being ranked 22 in the world well that's already ruined we're oh, all, is it? There, there's still 22 of us but we're ranked 23 now oh that's because at euros uh ben coppin got a 20 right yeah so yep yeah that's already the it's partially ruined there's still 22 people with a 22 but even if i leave that group we can always get back (laughs) someone else can get a 22 i'm working on it (laughs) yeah i mean i'm working on getting out of here but um (laughs) so far i've i've only managed three 22s so i'll be honest i don't really understand how to get good fmc singles like I'm very cons- I'm very consistently in like the 26, 27, 28 range. Mm-hmm. But I very rarely get good singles. It's just It'll like come. I don't know. <laughs> F- FMC karma comes in mysterious <laughs> ways. Like so my tw- my 322s, uh the first one was 15 to 5 or sorry, 15 to 4. Which okay. is god godly cancellations. Yeah. Yeah. Um next one was uh 17 to 3. A little bit better uh, than usual, but not that un- well, unlikely. Honestly, I was a little peeved it wasn't better because I found two different 17 to threes and an mm. 18 to three. Mm, okay. And I kind of felt like, mm, come on, one of these has got to cancel four or five. Like, <laughs> and of course, the 18 to three canceled four. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so just my luck. Uh, and then, of course, my most recent one a couple weeks ago was an LL skip. So. You know, in all, except for the three corner one where I got, you know, moderately lucky, getting good singles just takes good skip luck or insertion luck. Yep. Uh, is It's almost what it boils down to, really. Yeah. So and recently I got like a 23 just at home and it was oh, just nice. insertions. <laughs> just, it was like a 19 to 3C. Yeah. Just exactly. stupid insertions. 
Yep. Yeah, it'll... It, it, don't worry. FMC Karma has a way of working its way around. You'll, <laughs> you'll get there. You'll get there. I don't I don't know if people are going to want to hear that much about my FMC theories, but I'm trying to, like, think of, is there a way that you can, like, consistently get sub-25 or something? Because it, it kind uh, of feels like you need to get really lucky to get into that sort of range. Yeah, it sure feels like it. Um, I don't know, though. It's... Like, I honestly think that, uh, at least for me personally, I find that I do better when I just am okay with letting go of starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the... I think that's probably the thing for most FMCers is just... Right. You need to move on more often. Right. But I can't see any human method being better than EO first. Like, because that's literally mimicking what optimal solution finders are doing. Well, not optimal. Aren't... I thought, like, to find optimal, you just have to, like, brute force. It's it's just near optimal well, that you do. But the brute force algorithms do EO first. Oh, really? Yes. So you can find an actual optimal solution doing EO first? Uh, potentially, but they off. I mean, often the EOs are, like, seven or eight moves. Right, okay. So. Yeah, yeah so I guess it's, it's EO, but block building is built into it, because right. it all solves you have to have EO at some point. <laughs> yeah, and this is why the R prime, U prime, F padding on scrambles was so important. Otherwise, your optimal, like... You could just do EO and end up reversing the scramble just because you're doing like the perfectly normal EO you would normally do. Right. And especially, too, if the scramble was generated off a short EO, it might mm-hmm. be very explainable what you're doing. Yep. Um, I've done I've looked at a few Cube Explorer solutions before um, and like tried to see if like they were reasonable. And occasionally there are some pretty reasonable ones. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, we we pranked Walker on this once. I, I remember him telling me about this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll save that as a story for next time. Yeah. We're kind of running. <laughs> I, we talked about FMC, but I promise next episode we'll tell you all about the story of how we uh, pranked uh, <laughs> Walker on an FMC attempt at home. Speaking of good Nats results, though. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about some of the world records we didn't catch last time. So we talked about Daniel's square one world record, Daniel uh, Carnock, and Stanley Chappell's five blind. The other world record that we saw the day after we recorded uh, was Juan Pablo's new Megaminx world record. Which was, it was a single, right? 27 something? Yeah, it beat it by a couple seconds, I think. Yeah, it wasn't so the very, first, wasn't the I mean, first sub 30. No, but it was a big jump still. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty hype. It was also, um, I believe, the third third record event to happen on the green stage at nationals (laughs) so apparently green stage is where everything was happening yeah um but unfortunately one of those three record events did not turn out to be a world record um so that was a bummer do we want to talk about that i don't know if there's too much to say about it yeah i mean it's it sucks i don't there's miss scrambles suck and I think what's most annoying about this one is I'm almost positive it was in transfer when this happened. And I, I'm not quite I as convinced about that, but I'm pretty convinced. I'm I, I think it's very much more likely than not that I'm not. Of course, I'm not like without a reasonable doubt believing that, but I'm pretty yeah. solidly convinced. It's the sort of thing that could easily happen. Yeah, and especially considering the logistics of, like, having to run cubes over those fences and people... And, like, the the running situation was not great at Nationals because it was, you know, set up on stages as a premier event. But I honestly think it's just... It had to be that, given that it was the L face that was turned and the last move was an L2. I don't see how you do an L or an L prime instead of an L2. 
I mean, it could yeah. happen. It could happen. Well, I'm not I, saying I could it see it as like like sometimes I'll just miss a turn. Like it's it's more often for like you two because that's like a flick thing where I just miss a flick and I don't notice. Mm-hmm. Um, not off not as often for L two, but sometimes I'll like turn my wrist some amount, and maybe I didn't like I thought I started in home grip or. Right or or like I started in home grip, but I thought I started with like my thumb on the bottom or something. So I just turned my thumb up to the top, and I feel like I did an L two. But yeah, I, I agree that it's it's a not an easy mistake to make. Right, and I think the thing that bothers me the most about this is you know with most misscrambling cases, I can look at it and be like, all right, we as delegates organizers need to just do better. These are preventable cases, and. We need to make sure that scramblers are just treating their jobs seriously. Unfortunately, that's not happening a lot of times. Yeah. And but if it is like a transit error, that's not right. Like, like I how do you prevent awful. that? Yeah. Right. I feel awful because I have no clue how I'm supposed to prevent that other than telling runners to be careful. Like I don't even know how they're gonna runners can identify. You know, sometimes when they when things get accidentally turned in yeah. transit, like I, like maybe if we had special cube covers for every different event, yeah. but also every different cube size you can submit. Like right. it needs to yeah. fit the cube, but people use different size cubes. No, so. no, that's. I mean, we could make people have to supply their own cube covers, but then I feel like that's it running into potential like abuse where people could you know. Yeah. I don't know, put cameras inside their cube covers? <laughs> I don't know. And also, that just seems like a ridiculously far step to take. Like, yes. How is everyone... Like, what are you going to do if you have, like, a weird-shaped cube that no one... Like, if you're using a mini-cube and mm-hmm. no big company is making a cube cover specifically for it, what are you going to do? Right, yeah, that's... Go 3D print know. one? <laughs> I guess. Like, I mean... I, like, those 3D printed clock covers, those were so nice. But... Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not feasible for other events because clock is a very standardized thing. There's only one clock, really. Yeah, other than the glued-on magnets sometimes causing issues. Yeah. They're pretty standard. But uh, I don't know. I I feel awful for Max, and I feel awful ju- in general just because I don't know what to do about this. <laughs> like, I, in other misscramble cases, I feel like there's definitely something that could have been done. But if this really was a transit error... What do you do about that? And do we blame competitors for like these random events that aren't in their control? I don't know. It's it's yeah. sucky. <laughs> I mean, at, at least he was able to get the provisional extra scramble, not just have yeah. it DNF'd. Yeah, what so, a what a what a but, consolation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's really sucky. I mean, in my opinion, I think we need to it, it would be a weird weird retroactive step to make. But I honestly think that we should DNF the Felix one-handed record. And I I just, it's, I know that, like, people say, the problem with, here's the reason I don't like that it stands. Um, People are starting to delineate cases of, if it's noticed during the comp, we just give an extra and don't count the first. If it's not noticed in comp, we let it stand. Yeah, and that doesn't, that shouldn't happen. No, well, yeah, I the, I hate Maybe. that protocol because should it? Ha- I don't know though, because if it isn't noticed during the comp, then you're penalizing the competitor for something completely outside of their control. Right, but then what happens? So thankfully, it didn't matter that the the parks were very willing to let us see the video. Thankfully, but it wouldn't have even mattered because Mental Block was streaming and we could mm-hmm. easily watch a clip of it. But what really sucks though is that like say this ha- happened at a normal comp where the only recording of this solve happened on um a personal camera mm-hmm. and they're just like no i don't want to share it right 
okay. And it's like, they might not have, they have no clue whether it's a missed scramble or not, but they're just like protecting themselves. Like, I don't want to lose this record. And I know you'll probably let it stand if I don't give you the evidence. Mm -hmm. And I really don't like that precedent with, because that's how people are delineating these cases is if they go unnoticed, then they make a decision on whether the scramble was an equivalent-ish scramble or whatever they did on Felix's one-hand Isn't solve. it clearly defined in the regs now, though? I, th I thought that was a problem in the past, but now there's like definitely a clear regulation that says if there was a missed scramble that wasn't caught, it's a DNF or something. There is, is... nothing in the regulation. There is really? the word missed scramble is not a word in the regulations at huh. all. Okay. The regulations are... Um, basically abstinence only education <laughs> uh, you just don't miss scramble whatever yeah. you do kids don't miss scramble there's no other options <laughs> i mean uh. that's, that, that, that's really how they're written i mean the, yeah. the regulation that gets cited on all the time is 4b scramble or puzzles must be scrambled using comp computer generated random scramble sequences but the, wait aren't Aren't there, um, what, what is the wording used for like Megaminx and 6x6 and stuff where it doesn't matter if you scramble correctly? Okay, so there's, there's regulation 4G, which just says after scrambling a puzzle, the scrambler must verify the puzzle is scrambled correctly. If the puzzle state is wrong, the scrambler must correct it. Then 4G1 is for 6, 7, and Megaminx. It is not necessary to correct the puzzle state at the discretion of the delegate. Okay. So, so it literally says nothing about what should happen with the solve if the missed scramble happens. Right. It just says that, you know, the, the procedure is if it's incorrect, you fix it now, not let it go. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, basic, legitimately, our regulations are promoting abstinence only education in terms yeah. of misscrambles. What do you think is actually like the most fair way to handle it, though? There isn't. Is? There is no fair way to handle it. That's I... what drives me insane about this. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I don't I don't know whether it's more fair to let this like let the solve happen, but then it's like they probably gain an advantage from that right. scramble. So that's unfair to everyone else. But if you DNF it, it's unfair to them. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. No, I so there's basically two sides here. You can have a zero tolerance policy for misscrambling, or you can have a sort of you know a lax policy on misscrambling and. The pros of being more lax is that you can make, you know, calls when you think it's, you know, ridiculously unfair to DNF these sorts of cases. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, the competitor was, you know, obliging to give you video evidence, it's like it feels wrong to penalize the competitor. However, it's always a blurred line. Like, at what point did this scramble become too easy? Okay, well, what I was just thinking now, and this isn't like a super solidly formed opinion... Mm -hmm. But I, now I'm sort of thinking that it's more fair to just let it stand all the time as long as it's something that could be generated by the WCA scrambler, scrambler. Because there's also extra scrambles, which not everyone gets a chance at. So, like, extra scrambles already exist and give sometimes competitors scrambles that other competitors don't get. So mm -hmm. I don't see how it's that different as long as it's, like, a legal scramble state. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair argument. So yeah, you could. that's another, you know, rather than being wishy-washy and determining whether it's, you know, significantly easier or harder or whatever, you can be, you know, have all a, a total tolerance towards misscrambles. Like, if we sent it out, oops, our fault. Yeah. As long as it abides by the standards. As long as it's not like a two-move scramble. <laughs> yeah. The weird thing, though, is remember the four or five or whatever Max got on one-handed that mm -hmm. one time? Oh, yeah. If we have a very 100% oh. tolerance policy, 
do we seriously have to let that stand? I don't know. Because then I feel like that one was, I don't know. Like, there's no way to prove it really, but it could have, that one could have been like, a scrambler is intentionally setting it up for him. And I feel like. I'm convinced a scrambler intentionally set that up. Yeah. I don't know. I feel weird because that was my competition. Uh, So (laughs) that's kind of on me for not having better scramblers. But. um, Yeah, I mean, it happens. But yeah, I don't know. It's. But yeah, so then you, I guess then you just have to be much more careful. Like maybe, maybe there would be something like maybe the WCA could create some new subset of like instead of delegates, maybe they could have official scramblers and only certain people are allowed to scramble if you're like officially approved. But yeah, this has been discussed quite a bit and I just don't think it'll ever happen. We don't have the infrastructure for that. Yeah. 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 I, I honestly, maybe in the long term future, but yeah, I think that's a long term goal. Um, I think honestly, one of the best ways that we can make this fairer, though, um, at least if we're gonna be, if we're gonna live in a world where Felix's world record stands and Max's doesn't, one thing that I think we can do, and it, this is cost prohibitive a little bit, but I think that having a small camera at every station eliminates the need to kind of request competitors to submit video. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit. We sort of oh, mentioned we? that. Yeah. When we were talking about, like, video evidence being used. Uh, Oh, that's right. Yeah, Yeah. we talked a little bit about recording everything. And it does seem like it would be a bit cost prohibitive, especially in, Mm -hmm. um, like, some parts of the world. Right. I think one thing that you could do that makes it significantly less cost prohibitive, though, is... uh, And, again, it makes it a little weird and, and unequal, but you could have some sort of criteria for when you have to record a specific competitor's solve. That's that's also similar to what Lucas Guerin was uh, suggesting for having to scramble check, like in it, like having an additional yeah. scramble check for certain people's cubes. Yes. And another another it, way to make it more uh, cost-effective, sorry uh, to break in, but would be to just use, like, really bad cameras. Like, they just have to be good enough that you can, like, see the colors on the cube. It doesn't have to be, like, HD or anything. Right. Well, and the thing, too, is with, like, um, if you just need to get the best competitors, rarely do you need to record one station at a time or more than one. So it could honestly just be the delegate or organizer's phone that does these recordings. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, there's definitely, I don't know, there's definitely good potential proposals out there. And um, I'm starting to get behind the idea of sticking with zero tolerance and just making sure that we don't have to be in an awkward situation where we have to request the video ourselves and that we have a video of just about every record that happens. Yeah, I feel like that's a little bit different from where you've stood on these things in the past where you've talked about like the integrity of the results from top to bottom. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, though, that miss scrambles are too huge of a deal, though. Like, it's... I do agree that we need to, like, ideally, the best solution is never to send out a miss scramble. Yeah. But I don't believe in abstinence-free education. So, well, how about this? Instead of necessarily, like, basically have it so that if a miss scramble happens, it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. it's always counted. But then, basically, instead of having to record every solve, just make sure we scramble check for faster competitors, like Lucas Guerin was saying. I feel like that deals with that problem without mm. making an unfair like sure if if we send them a, a miss scramble it'll happen but i feel like we can significantly reduce the amount like the chance of a miss scramble by having multiple people check yeah and if we only do that for fast people it doesn't really add 
much mm-hmm. in terms of hassle for the organizers yeah. and stuff. I mean, I'd be in favor of just doing scramble checking across the board. Like, having a box that a scramble checker signs off on mm-hmm. for every scorecard. I would not be I would not be opposed to making that mandatory that somebody has to even even if it is the scrambler themselves, I wouldn't like I think it would just be nice to at least add some um, person who's in charge of scramble checking and adding a signature. Yes, just because I think that even just doing that adds a great deal of accountability because you were saying I scrambled this. This is correct. Yeah. And then at most you would have like one move off in transit, um, <laughs> and I think that, I think I think that like one move off in transit that should always be allowed. Like that's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't think that could ever give a significant enough advantage to right. justify DNFing the solve. If we had someone scramble check it and that did happen, I think it might be more arguable that that is an allowed state. But uh, I mean, is two moves okay? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's tough. But that's also much less likely to happen because it's it's unlikely in the first place for it to be one move off. I guess, yeah. I think. I mean, lightning can strike twice sometimes, but... I guess, but it, it seems like the odds go down so far for two moves rather than one. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know, dude. Miss Scrambles suck. They do. <laughs> I just... There's... They, uh, I'd honestly love to live in a world where they just never happen, but they're going to happen. Whether, I mean, because we know we're never going to eliminate every missed scramble. Mm -hmm. No matter what policies we enact, we just have to do whatever we think is going to reduce them as much as possible. Right. We've had so many of these instances happen in the past few years that I really just think that we need to enact something. Something needs to change. I don't know what the best policy is. I personally think that just across the board, not even doing it for top competitors, just scramble checking. Yes. Making, even if it is... And I think having another person... Yeah, I think having another person is great, but I think that just the most basic first step that doesn't add a significant, you know, ordeal to competitors or to to the organization team is just making a sign-off. And you can, we can suggest that the person who signs and does the checking is different than the person who applies the sequences. Yeah, I feel like that would run a lot faster. Like, right. Well, because you have I think to sort it would. Of, you have to, like, uh, switch your mental, like, framework. What's it called? There's a mm. word. Yeah, well, the, the issue, too, I would be concerned about is whether the people who are scrambling, if they're going to then check, would, have, would actually check it as thoroughly as someone who would check it separately. Yeah, yeah if, if that's your whole job, you can, like, you can kind of learn the scrambles and what they look like as you're looking at them. And right, you right. can get much faster at actually checking everything. Right. And then the scramblers can be a little less careful, I guess. I don't yeah, know that you shouldn't maybe. be uncareful, but um, <laughs> like, <laughs> you don't have to, you know, if you miss well, scramble If you have someone else checking it, you don't have to check it at all. Right, exactly. So you can speed up that a little bit, I guess. So I don't know. We... We need to do something, and I think a good first step that at least eases us into it would be to just at least have scramble signing and mm-hmm. highly suggest that the signer is not the scrambler. And, yeah. you know, when, when we do that, I think it'll be easier for us to do more test cases of, you know, how does this really slow us down to add someone who's a dedicated checker? Mm-hmm. That we don't have to enforce it across the board everywhere 
because it's going to be just highly suggested, not required. But, you know, if a lot of these test cases are successful and we don't notice significant, you know, drawbacks or, you know, time issues because of this. Honestly, though, I think it's honestly, even if things run a little bit slower, I think it's worth the loss of time. Yep. I agree completely. Anyways, this is getting me stressed out. Let's talk about something else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, there's another world record, not at Nationals, but... um, True. Name pronunciations. Shivam? Yeah, it's Shivam. Shivam Bonsal? Something? uh, Shivam Bonsal, I believe. Okay. I'm less confident about the last name, but I know the first name, Shivam. Okay. Shivam Bonsal set the multi-blind world record at, what was it, 48 out of 48? Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, and it's like it's awesome that it's n out of n, but at the same time, um, I know this from talking with Mark a lot. People don't realize how hard accuracy is at the top level of multi-blind, and with the exception of Mark's world record stint at forty-three out of forty-four, the world record has been a hundred percent for a long time. Yeah, and I think people don't appreciate how awesome that is. That is, yeah, that's hard to do. It's so hard to do. Like, and, and, and I, it's like. Shivam still would have been a world record if he wasn't 100% accurate. Right, just, it just happens to be that it is. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's uh, like I, I, it's almost a little irksome because I think it now just reinforces further that people are still not going to appreciate how hard an N out of N attempt is. Yeah. Like, I almost would prefer it to be 49 out of 50. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, just because getting 100% is so hard. And, like, even though Marks wasn't 100%, every cube that he f- finished executing was solved. So, yeah, that's also, yeah. Which is also incredible. I mean, he it was a memo error, because a lot of the times they're execution errors. Yeah, and you just um, don't, you don't have time to think about whether your execution is correct. You just have to assume. Especially when you're doing that many cubes. Yeah. Um, which just really makes that 48 out of 48 super impressive. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a little irksome, just because I... The continuation of people not appreciating how awesome 100% attempts are is going to continue. But it's also awesome because it is a 100% (laughs) accuracy attempt. So, yeah. I don't know. Those are my thoughts on it. Yeah. I just think it's really cool that it's jumped so far. And really, Shivam's the only person who can do that. Like, right now, at least. Yeah. Mark Mark and Graham, they're both really good multi-blinders. They weren't attempting 48 at Nationals. They were... I think they were doing like 46. Yeah, they were both doing 46. Yeah, so now it's at the point there is only one person in the world who is even attempting to break the world record. Right, and I believe Graham and Mark have done 50-plus at home and have gotten some attempts under an hour. So, because, I mean, let's be real. Your accuracy, honestly, from what I've heard from a lot of multi-blinders, feels more random than it does about how well you performed. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, Mark did not believe that he got world record because, I mean, he knew one cube was bad because he was holding it in his hands. Yep. He honestly had no, like, he did not think the attempt went that well. Yeah. <laughs> but it did. Uh, and there's a lot of times I hear from, the like, Marcus. Mark is the one I talk to a lot about multi-blind, so a lot of this is going to be based on his experiences. But from what Mark tells me a lot is, you know, he'll think an attempt went super well. Like, he just felt like execution was great. Like, he didn't have pauses. Like, he felt like he didn't mess up any turns or anything like that. And then there will be, like, ten scrambled cubes. <laughs> so, like, it's... It, it, honestly, it sometimes feels a bit random, the accuracy in multi. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm nowhere near that level, but I can I feel that too. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I personally feel that too, even though I'm have only attempted like 13 at most. So yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's awesome. Like 48 out of 48 is, I don't think it's going to stand as long as the 41 out of 41 will, but um, I would not be surprised if it lasts at least a year. Maybe. Although I wouldn't be surprised if Shivam beat it either. True. True. Yeah. That's totally true too. Yeah. I guess more of what I was saying is I was, I would be, I definitely think Shivam will hold it for at least yes, a year. Yeah, I agree. Um, but I also, I also too wouldn't be surprised if that forty-eight is the is what stands for a okay. year. Yeah. So I, I don't mean, know. It's since it is hard to just, it's hard to be consistent at multi-blind. At yeah, for big attempts. Right. It's a lottery ticket sometimes. The accuracy. Yeah. So, um, but man, uh, multi-attempts are real fun to watch too, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, the execution, at least. Yeah, I was uh, watching uh, the live stream of Shivam's. And, oh, were you? Yeah, it was really intense because it seemed like he wouldn't have enough time, but I think it was just because of the stream delay. Mm. It was like, we were like, he's going to be like a minute behind or, or like two minutes behind, but then he finishes on time and I don't know. Oh, okay, gotcha. But yeah, it was really intense to watch because it was just like everyone and he kept dropping cubes and like pushing them off the table. Oh, God. I don't know if you saw anything about it. No. Yeah, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe it was just like a really slippery table, but he just kept like putting them to the side and they would fall on the ground. So and we the were caps like, okay, were intact. Yep, they all stayed intact. I think one or of them plus two, um, okay. or something. It, I don't know. Uh, well, but, I guess a cube can have one cap come off. Right. Yeah. I think they actually stayed entirely intact because at one point the guy who was doing the live stream like went down and showed all the ones on the ground. Oh and my it was god! Multi- it was not just one cube on the ground. There was like eight cubes on the ground or something. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, usually when that happens, usually that screws you up so much that you can't do anything about it. Like or. I don't know. Um, yeah, he just kept, it was just really funny. Like you would just see him like kind of put his cube to the side and they would just fly off the table. Right. Was it one of those like thin like classroom style tables or was it actually uh, it was, like a full table? It was hard to tell. I think it was like a foldable table. Oh wow, that's that's just bad uh, cube management. <laughs> I did see an interesting proposal or an idea once is for like someone to bring their own like shallow box or something mm. to put cubes in. Mm-hmm. to make it like easier to um make sure the cubes like stay on the table yeah uh but then a lot of people were debating like does this count as assistance from an outside object or um yeah it, it isn't there something it says specifically like non-electronic objects can be used as long as they don't give you an advantage or something right and i'm not sure if i would consider this an advantage or just like an environment improvement because like if, yeah because, like, for example, like, having a thin, like, one-and-a-half uh, deep class, one-and-a-half-foot classroom table versus a three-foot full-size table, that's an advantage. <laughs> like, yeah. you have more room to place your cubes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's already sort of, like, advantages and disadvantages in this way from competition to competition, or even within competitions if you have different size tables. Yeah. So is that enough of an insignificant advantage or is there are there already enough differences where a box is okay? Yeah. I don't Wasn't, know. I, I, I s- think I saw a video of someone putting their cubes in a basket recently. I don't remember who it was. Maybe maybe that's where the discussion started. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> it might be. Um okay, if we find that video we'll have to follow up next time. Okay. So now that we're finally done with follow-up, I think it's a good time to mention that this podcast is sponsored by Sarah Cook's Designs. 
Sarah Cook designed the logo for this podcast, so there's a good example of her work right there. She also makes logos for competitions and other cubing stuff, like uh, she sells cubing-themed t-shirts in comps and online. You can find her on Instagram at PastelCubes, and she's got a link to her shop where you can find all of her other stuff from there. A-plus work. It's awesome stuff. Check her out. Yeah, and you can get, she can design stuff for you, so. That's right. Yeah, just, just check it out, at Pastel Cubes. We've been recording for a while now. This is going to be a pretty long episode, because we basically had two episodes to follow up on. To save us some time here, um, we talked about some regulations already, 4B and 4G in terms of scrambling sequences. That's going to be our reg of the day for today. Great? Great. You okay sounds with that? Good. Yeah, that okay, sounds good sweet. to me. All right, sweet. All right, what do you want to talk about, Andrew? Um, so, well, we can go to the top of our list here. Um, I was thinking after some of our discussions of, like, learning and how to, you know, teach and stuff like that, um, something you hear about a lot, or at least I do when I'm cubing, is people will say, like, oh, I can't do that. Like, I'm not a visual learner, or, like, I can't think spatially like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of just, uh, like, all complete BS, like... I don't know if I really believe in this idea of having different, like, styles of learners. Yeah, and that's an interesting discussion, too. Um, A a lot of, there's not actually a lot of education research that really gets into, like, types of learners, from what I've seen, at least. I'm in Mm -hmm. math ed, though, so um, the biggest obstacle in, like, math education and stat education we have to deal with is people who say they aren't math people, which... There's overwhelming evidence that, you know, just about everybody has the capability to learn mathematics mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. statistics or any of these subjects. It's just a matter of, you know, your, your initial education, at least from the perspective that I have teaching at university. You know, some people are often coming out of, you know, less than ideal public schooling yeah. situations. And it's not that they aren't math like aren't good at learning math it's that they were not taught well or not motivated well enough to want to learn math Mm -hmm. and i think that to some extent types of learners is also not so much an innate thing but sort of like a, a much sort of like a how you prefer do you think it's sort of like you learn how to learn like you learn to be a type of learner I, I think to some extent, yes. I think that, you know, um, people are different, of course, but I think that certain experiences that you have in your life stick out more than others. And, you know, if you had, you know, experiences that really reinforced, you know, visual learning, like if you had, you know, maybe a childhood that, you know, did a lot of, gave, you know, if you had a lot of visual cues, visual learning sort of things like that, that can in you know, influence how you learn later in life. Um, mm-hmm. Like, we learn so much as an infant, and yet we know very little about how that happens. Yeah, like, you know? you, no one remembers the things that define, like, a lot of their early years, so it could very easily be something like mm-hmm. the way you're, you learn then influences how you learn later, but you have no way to consciously know that. Yes, and I think that, um, especially the Rubik's Cube, is, I think, is a great example about how you know, it doesn't matter what type of learner you are, mm-hmm. um, because it's for most able-minded people, learning the Rubik's Cube is not something you need to be a specific mind to do. It's, you know, if you can follow instructions, mm-hmm. you know, it's something that anyone can really learn how to do um, with do you think, enough do you practice. Do you think that, like, some people are better? I think that 
the thing is it's sort of hard to tell like if someone is better at learning cubing is it just because like they have some innate ability or is it because it's a type of learning that works for them like it's really hard to tell yeah. stuff like that because there are some oh, people who just learn like everything more easily right and yeah, i i don't have a good answer for that i do know that most education research that i've dealt with personally is a lot more about active learning um and you know promoting a more like equitable atmosphere for learning um as you know, like when you go to most college classes, you're just sitting there and listening to lectures, mm -hmm. um, which isn't, you know, a, a great education for all environment. It's education for those who are already the most educated. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, and I'm not just saying that there's that the people who are in college, are the most educated, I'm just even saying within college students, the, the ones who have excelled previously are going mm -hmm. to continue to excel in this environment. And those that struggle are going to fall behind even further so it's tricky because like i mean so a lot of like education research is focusing on like how do we make classrooms a learning environment for all you know how do we promote these sorts of you know learning experiences for any type of student not just the ones that are going to excel regardless mm -hmm. the fact that a lot of research you know, is directed in this way kind of, I think, shows a general belief that, you know, there's not a, like a specific person who can or can't learn something. Mm -hmm. I think that there's definitely preferences. People definite, and, you know, a lot of things that get stressed is being able to represent things in many ways. And that's because people do respond differently to different types of, you know, lessons, whether they're visual or rote memorization or anything like that. But I feel like even with things like that, it's often not the case that they learn it because it's visual they learn it because it's like better explained right and it's yeah like, i feel like there are some people who will get it the other way mm -hmm. because they're like tuned in enough or they have enough background or they're just intelligent enough or whatever yeah. um to get it even when it's less well explained but then when you add a visual sometimes that's just makes it so that it's explained better right exactly and i think that um the type of learner people claim that they are all the time is a visual learner. Right. Like, do you ever hear anyone claim <laughs> that they are any other type of learner? Oh, yes. I'm a uh, olfactory learner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, once I sniff it, I know it. <laughs> uh, something smells wrong here. Yeah. <laughs> you, forgot, you forgot a negative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, and I think that the, the thing is just that it's not that certain people are visual learners. It's that certain people respond better to or just, you know, won't respond to this sort of lesson or this sort of explanation. But visuals are just a helpful way to illustrate that. Yeah, like, it's like <laughs> you don't have to be paying attention as much to get visuals. Like that's, right. that's probably a lot of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like so many times I see people who are like, I just don't get it. And I'm like, well, were you listening? I saw you like talking during class or whatever. It's like. Yeah. I don't, yeah. So uh, I think a lot of it, too, yeah, is an attention span. Sort yeah. Of so thing. And yeah, visuals know, can keep people's attention. And I feel like that's also a big part of it. Yeah, definitely. And um I think that's like a big reason why active learning is so huge in education mm -hmm. research right now, because active learning keeps people engaged in the topic. It is not a one way street where someone's just talking at you the whole time, like a lecture yeah. style thing. Cause then there's you have actually, to engage yourself. Right. There's activities, there's dialogues, there's conversation that's happening. Like it's, it, you know, to some extent, it's just a matter of making sure people are paying attention. <laughs> so mm -hmm. 
And also when people are paying attention, they know when they don't understand something. Yes. And then they can like ask about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas and if you're not paying attention, of... you don't realize when you're not getting something. Right. And those sort of environments, you know, are often also more open to, uh, you know, to questions or clarifications or those sorts of discussions. Because, you know, when it's just one person talking to a room of potentially like 500 people, you're really going to raise your hand right now. Like, mm-hmm. even in yeah. a classroom of 40, it's hard for some people to feel brave enough to raise their hand yeah. and ask a question. Yeah, definitely. But when you have more back and forth dialogue going out, it's easier for people to voice their their confusions their misunderstandings you know where you know what's what you know trying to correct what we may not correct but trying to get a better understanding of what they're you know not fully grasping so then to sort of take this from a different angle do you think that cubing has made you a better like spatial or visual or whatever reasoner uh no really not really i think i was already a pretty good one i think for me like, it's hard to tell because I have no idea what I would be like if I didn't do cubing because I've done it and there's no way to A-B test that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I feel like there are certain things where, as far as just, like, transforming things in my head, mm-hmm. like, when I look at something upside down, I have no no problem telling, like, which side of that is the, the right, right as a direction, not as incorrect, the right, right side of it from, like, the front side. Like, I can do that... F- I can flip that in my head really easily and I can so like like if there's a button that says like oh this thing will be turned clockwise but I'm looking at it from the other direction I can really easily imagine like what that means yeah see I don't think that was an issue for me before cubing I think that I was already a pretty good visually like that yeah I don't think it was for me either but I'm just like sometimes I feel like I might be better at it but I don't know So I think that there's one case that I can think of that was helpful, but it's super Rubik's Cube specific. Um, It was when we were talking about symmetries of a cube. Mm -hmm. So like, like it was because the, um, the symmetries of of a cube form an algebraic group, Mm -hmm. which is basically similar to cube rotations. Okay. So I don't think it's that I couldn't visualize how a cube rotates, but when you have colored sides and, you know, can easily visualize a Rubik's cube in that way, yeah. um, it becomes a lot easier to track, you know, all the different symmetries. But I wouldn't say, I would say that that's a specific example helping me in that instance. Yeah, that's more, that's not really like a type of like learner or like reasoner. That's no. more just like, that's just like you already learned that thing. <laughs> Kind of, yeah. I mean, I had to kind of apply it in a new circumstance where we were, like, talking about those sorts of, like, symmetries and in group theory. But, um, you know, I don't consider that really, you know, that I that I was a better visual learner because of the Rubik's Cube. I would consider that this is an example of how I use the Rubik's Cube to better understand a visual circumstance. Like, I'm mm-hmm. probably, I probably could have visually understood symmetries of a cube if I'd never seen a Rubik's Cube in my life, but um, the Rubik's Cube definitely made it easier for me to organize my thoughts. Hmm, yeah. So, I, I don't know. What other types of learners really even are there? Like, there's visual, like, that people say, and not saying they actually exist, but... Yeah, I mean, so... What I get a lot, um, especially because I teach a lot of more active learning style classrooms, is that mm-hmm. a lot of people give me a lot of concerns because they're like, I don't feel like I learn this way. I feel like I learn more from, you know, rote memorization definitions, like just give me 
more just mm. tell i pref, i'm a, like a like they're more like auditory learners i guess they just want to hear things so i it, it's funny because you don't think those people exist but when you suddenly well, teach like a lot of reform uh education sort of ideas and you do these active learning classes they're like oh i'm really intimidated by this and it's like well, the thing is, though, in every case that this has come up, usually it's just a matter of them buying into the curriculum and, like, understanding. It's not so much of a learning thing as it is a comfort thing. Yeah. And they're just not comfortable learning amongst, like, the rest of the class, group discussions, things like that. And once they kind of get more comfortable and buy into the idea, I don't think I've had a case where someone, like, you know, like, seven weeks in was like, this is awful. I mean, if, if those people exist, they usually drop out. Mm. well before they make it that far <laughs> but i so i have had a few instances of you know students who drop out because they're like this is wacky new school nonsense that i'm not getting into <laughs> i would also make the distinction between like rote memorization and learning in a different way like learning through experience being like almost you're not learning the same thing so it's not like different ways of learning the same information i feel like you're actually learning different things when you do it that way mm-hmm like, if you just memorize how to do something but don't learn how it works, you might be able to get the same result, but as far as what you've actually learned is different. Yeah, so you kind of, you're kind of almost describing um, uh, a type of learning theory called constructivism, mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, Piaget was the biggest guy behind this, and it's basically a learning theory that is built up upon actual experiences. Right. So where, you know, you're, you're building essentially schemas based on your personal experiences and reapplying those schemas to future situations. Hmm. So it's, it, it kind of falls in line with like, you know, the people that say like you learn the best, like when you go travel somewhere new or when you, you know, physically get to like either visually or physically get to interact with something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of other sort of um, pedagogy learning theories and things like that. Like uh, the one that most, uh, professors buy into is information processing okay where you were spewing out information and the learners <laughs> process it yeah there's a lot of different learning theories i haven't i'm not as refreshed as i should be on this those are like the two big ones <laughs> i mean not not that we research a lot on information processing but it's yeah. kind of the the poo-pooed learning theory that uh too many people believe in that somehow like your knowledge is like a box and you were trying to collect items and put them in your box yeah like it's just <laughs> eh, not really a not really a great theory of learning there's another thing that's like called like embodied cognition where it's like you it, it's it's kind of a branch of constructivism that's more about like physical experiences that you learn from more physically being involved in things mm-hmm and like involving parts of your body will it, is like a, a way of learning so uh, there's there's a lot of crazy uh theories for learning out there and it's been a year and a half since i really studied them intensely so yeah yeah i guess there's also like like just thinking about how like using knowledge is so important to retaining it at least for most people or in most situations i feel like, if you just learn something, there's always that, like, random thing where it's like, oh, yeah, I learned that, like, 10 years ago, and now all of a sudden, like, I can remember this one fact I learned that one time. Yeah. But that's not, like, a guaranteed thing, whereas if it was something right. where, 
like I spent a month using this knowledge every single day. I'm never going to forget it. Like the whole riding a bike sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although with a bike, I feel it's slightly different because that's more like your brain like figures out the like the it's like a puzzle. And once right. you know how to solve how to solve it once, you can always do it again. Well, I guess that is sort of similar. Um, yeah. Because like once you've gone through all those steps of like solving a puzzle, you're not gonna forget how you did it. You're just like, oh, every time you see. So I guess that's sort of like your body and your brain figuring out the puzzle of balancing on a bike. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like I always think just if if you're using information, you're gonna remember it. Especially like the longer you use it, the more likely you are to remember it. No, totally. I absolutely agree. So, I mean, and then I've, yeah, wrote, like, practice or just, you know, doing more examples, more practice is always, I mean, it never hurts, really. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that falls a little bit kind of in the information processing sort of realm. (laughs) (laughs) Just because, like, and when you look at, like, traditional classes, you see a lot of, you know, lecturing and then after lecturing, you give people homework, which is just more examples of what you did in your lectures. Yeah. So it's it, it, it kind of fits in with that. But it's also different because when you talk about things like the cube, those are more experienced. They're more uh, personal. They're more, you know, physical that you get to see examples of. So I guess it's, it's definitely different in that way. Yeah. And, and like, homework um, is almost like a way to make up for what just, like, lectures lack basically Mm -hmm. because a lecture is like almost by definition it's just a one-time like a one-shot thing um like you're not going to really repeat information in a lecture right exactly so homework sort of makes up for the fact that you don't because it's hard to learn anything if you just see it or hear it once and homework makes up for that yeah exactly recently i've been um trying to transition to full orozco as okay. my three-blind method from M2OP. Mm-hmm. Uh, in case people aren't familiar with blind, because I'd imagine there are some people out there who don't really know anything about blindfolded solving. Right. Um, what you basically do is you memorize the cube like a piece at a time, and then you do algs um, or alg-like things to only affect certain pieces on the cube without affecting other pieces. That's the That's the gist of it, so... You don't have to like predict how everything's going to move as you're solving other stuff. You just know that you have to solve pieces in a certain order. A very common method for that is called M2OP. OP stands for Old Pockman. Man, we're getting real basic here. Yeah. Um, you're, re- you're really assuming nothing of our listeners. Well, I, I just want to <laughs> give a brief overview so that people can understand the difference between this method yeah, and yeah. a okay, okay. Especially because a lot of people aren't as familiar with a Rosco. Mm-hmm. Um, so in M2OP, you basically use an M2 to interchange some edges, and you use basically a Y perm to interchange some corners. Yep. And then like the advanced method is three style, which is where you use commutators for everything, and you solve two pieces at a time. Mm-hmm. Commutators affecting three pieces. Right. Orozco is where you use com- those same commutators, but you use two of them to solve two pieces. So you sort of have like a commutator in the middle that you cancel out. Or like you have a piece that you saw sol- that you unsolve and then solve again every single time with your commutators, and you just switch back and forth. It's a pretty big time save over M two OP, and it's mostly useful as a transition between not knowing like the four hundred or whatever commutators that you need <laughs> to know for three style. Um, right. It's it's a good transitional step because you learn maybe I think like forty or so commutators for edges and corners. 
And then from there, you can do a full solve now using those. So you get good practice with those, and then you can gradually add in others. And as I've been doing this, I, I, I find it hard to practice blindfolded, actually, just because it takes so long. And I feel like... And yet you practice FMC. Well, <laughs> I, I guess it's not that it takes long. It's that it doesn't have to take long, mm-hmm. but it does for me. So I feel like the faster your execution is the faster your memo can be because you don't have to remember the information as long. And I always feel frustrated because I'm like, I'm memoing for so long, but that's only because I know I'm going to forget it. What if I could like, what if I could practice memoing much faster and then just work on getting my execution up to speed? Well, there's a way to do that. I mean, there's a few ways to do that. Yeah. (laughs) And the way I've been sort of toying with is basically just practicing execution for a long time. Mm-hmm. Getting my execution as good as it possibly can be, and then mm-hmm. working on memo so that I don't have to learn to memo any like longer or I basically can learn the most efficient memo for my speed of execution is what I've been trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you what tool do you use to do that? I actually haven't been using a tool. I've just been doing basically cited solves where I do like a pair at a time and just execute as quickly as possible. Or I'll like memo like three pairs or something. So mm-hmm. not any by any means the same amount of information as a whole cube but like a smaller amount of information where it's like the memorization part isn't really a super important step in the process right and then just execute them as fast as i can uh and so so i'm executing like three pairs at a time and i'm practicing the commutators and i'm practicing transitioning between them and canceling moves and stuff like that and that way i don't i'm not spending any time on practicing memorization right now it's just all execution trying to get that as good as possible have you uh, heard of Kevin Matthews' tool before? Yeah, I know. He has a thing that just, like, generates a memo. To, or what does it exactly do? I know I'm, like, I talk to him all the time. I should know what, exactly what this does, but I don't. Yeah. So, uh, I'm kind of surprised you don't use it based on what you've been describing to me as your practice. But it's this tool where you input, like, basically exactly how you solve blind. Like, what your buffers are. what yeah. Whether you twist pieces at the end or if you, like, do two targets on them. Whether, uh, like, you could specify your whole execution order as well. There's, like, just a ton of different specifications that can literally, like, apply to almost any person's blind solving mm-hmm. uh, method, letter scheme, and all that. And then... Once you do that, you get the ability to get a little generate scramble button, mm-hmm. and it'll show you a picture of the scramble, the scramble sequence, and then the entire memo based on your preferences. Ah, okay. So you can do exactly what you've been doing, where you just do these scrambles, put the cube under the table, and read the memo off your computer. Okay, I knew he had something like that. I wasn't sure exactly how it worked, because I hadn't tried it yet. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's exactly what you want, yeah. unless like there's this was like an opening to the story, and there's some like caveat coming in how you're changing how you practice blind. I well, there's a little bit of that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I might start using that tool though. Okay, yeah, I f- I found it super helpful for like mm-hmm. four blind and five blind especially. Yeah, I bet I I would I think I'm definitely probably gonna start using that. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, what I didn't realize was that, it, was that it actually generated the scramble. I thought it would just like spit out a bunch of letter pairs for you to execute and then it would be hard to tell if you did them or not. But no, I guess that's, that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Also for listeners, if you want to use this tool, like if this sounds interesting, just Google blind memo tools or BLD memo tools. Um, and it's a speed solving post. Um, 
highly recommended if you're trying to get into blind and just want to practice making sure you don't make execution errors. Yeah. What's changed a little bit for me is that mm -hmm. I've gotten to the point with like my edge cons, because that's what I've been working on first. Mm -hmm. um, I got to the point where I felt like I was executing them very quickly and basically I couldn't really get any faster at them until I spent a long time drilling each of them individually. Okay. So I decided to work on memo a little bit. And I had been trying to do audio for edges. So mm -hmm. that's where you, you know, you just trace the pieces and combine the the letters that you trace into a sound. And that's hard to just make it stick in your head because sounds don't stick as well as like images or stuff or right. other things like that, but you can create them much more quickly. So I was trying to do full audio edges, which is what I normally do for blind. Mm -hmm. But what I want to do is be able to get to the point where I just have to trace once and not review at all, and then I can just execute. But in practice, that's like way harder than it seems. Um, so yeah, what, I was, exactly. what I started doing was I started sort of building up like one pair at a time. Like I would trace three pairs, execute three pairs. Mm -hmm. And I got to the point where I could do that every single time, no review. And it wasn't, that wasn't really hard because it's just three things to store in your like super short term memory. Right. And then I added another four. It, I messed up like a couple times the first two times I tried it or so or so. Um, but then after that, it was like started nailing it every time. Hmm. As soon as I as soon as I added the fifth pair, mm -hmm. I dropped to like a five percent success rate. Wow. Yeah. It was like the difference between four and five for me is enormous and it's it was really frustrating actually because four felt so easy and then five just felt like impossible almost so when you say pairs do you mean eight letters then uh let's see five pairs would be 10 letters oh yeah 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 yeah. Or, yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah i i was i wasn't sure because like with a roscoe i know technically you're doing a letter pair for every letter no yeah so i but wanted to make sure i still memorize it the same way so like okay. i still memorize in just pairs of letters i don't like, my, my buffer target for edges is Q or CH. I basically just treat it as CH, but I think of it as Q. Yeah. So I, I'm not, like, memorizing, like, oh, BQLQ or BQQL. No, I just memorize BL. Right. Um, so I'm still memorizing the same way. Okay. But yeah, yeah I was just, just I was just, cl just clarifying. So I, but that, that seems about right because it, it's definitely a lot harder to do audio when you get to like the 10 or 12 range it's why a lot of people really are starting to or some people really prefer um doing corner execution first yeah i know that's what kevin matthews does just because they can handle that amount of audio a lot better yeah and i thought that i would be fine with audio edges but i'm starting to reconsider and maybe go to corners yeah. well and a lot one of the reasons too a lot of people do audio edges is they start with like M2OP and the parody alg for executing edges first is way, 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 way better than the parody alg for corners first. Okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. I think. Can't you do parody at the end of edges? Well, so are you talking about like the D prime L2D M2 yes. alg? Okay. Yeah. You have to. So the problem, I believe, when you do it, um, so like if you do corners first. Mm -hmm. Because it's Y perms, you're going to have two of the edges switched. And then when you do the M2, it do, it actually, like, it does, like, a three cycle of those edges. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, what screws it up. I see. So you need a much different, a different parity alg. Yeah, yeah. It involves, like, a setup to T perm, basically. Okay. So, 
Yeah, if you, Matt Matt Dickman does corners first with M2OP and he does that parody alg and it's disgustingly long compared to the seven mover <laughs> so yeah and that's kind of one of the big advantages to doing edges first at least with that method and i think it's why a lot of people started doing edges first is because one they felt like they could handle that much audio um and two because the execution time was way better yeah using that the, approach. The, the reason i did it is because i felt like if i can handle it it's mm-hmm. better to do it because it's doing more of the solve more quickly. Right. And and it's easy for me to do audio edges if I can review a little bit while I'm doing it. But when I try to force myself to not review at all, it becomes so difficult once you get to five pairs. Yeah, um, I totally agree. And I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be able to train myself up above that. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I maybe can, but I'd have to do experiment a lot more with it. Yeah, totally. That's, it's interesting, though. I kind of like that as a, just a general practice method, though, to, like, set up specific numbers of, like, letters to solve mm-hmm. for audio, and then just trying to do one pass-through and go. Yep. Yeah, that's and, exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, and then, like, slowly stepping it up and up more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the um, interesting thing is sometimes, like, since I'm just going by the amount of information, not actually the amount of the cube solved. Mm-hmm depending on like cycle breaks and flips and stuff sometimes i'll do this like four or five pairs and i'll have a solved cube Mm -hmm. sometimes i'll do it and i'll be like it barely anything is solved and i have to like retrace and see if i still remember it and like did i do that right 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 (laughs) just purely going on the amount of information is an interesting way to do it yeah maybe we'll have to poke kevin to see if he can add that sort of like trainer where it like gives you a specific scramble with a certain number of letters oh that would be cool because that yeah, if you could specify, I want this many edge targets and this many corner targets, mm-hmm. or maybe like you can even throw in this many edge targets and a flip or something. Yeah, hmm. that it could. Yeah, I know though. Getting him to because before um, <laughs> the scramble, the the automatic scramble generator was not actually a feature that was built in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had to copy and paste in the original version, which I started using in 2015 when he first made it. Um, mm-hmm. You had to copy and paste in scramble sequences into his thing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, that I think I looked at it then, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's why I still haven't gone back to it because I was like, oh, that's too much work. Yeah, but yeah, he added he added a random move scrambler, mm. which for practice purposes is fine. Mm-hmm. Like. It doesn't matter for practicing if you get random move or random state. You're literally just practicing execution. Yeah. But yeah, so now you can generate scrambles. But because he does something random move, I don't think he has a good way to like, unless like it's just a rejection method where he literally will just keep generating scrambles until <laughs> it gets the one that matches your uh, desired that, that, outcome. That seems unlikely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I mean, it, unless you pick like a pretty common scramble state, but yeah, if you're doing like a no corners scrambled, you're never going to get <laughs> the scramble <laughs> sequence you need. Yeah. Like if, if you choose like a like seven corner targets, 11 edge targets, that'll yeah. happen pretty often. <laughs> yeah, that'll probably come up in the first 10 scrambles almost always. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you're specifying no corner targets and like eight edge targets, I don't think it's ever yeah. going to generate that. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah. I but, want one edge target. Yeah. I mean, what you can do, though, is you can um, at least generate the scramble and just memo the first eight and then see, like, if you can continue to solve the rest of the way. That's true. Uh, the tricky part, though, is if you get, like, a cycle break after the first two, then it might differ from how the solver was going to do it. 
Oh yeah. Does the solver also let you uh, specify how you cycle break? Because I have like certain pieces that I always cycle break to first. Yes, you can specify a priority order for how you do cycle breaks. That's cool. Um, so like someone was complaining to me like, oh, but like I do s- different cycle breaks depending on different situations. And it's like, are you an idiot? Like, <laughs> sometimes I'll break in at A and sometimes I'll break in at J depending on what the previous piece was. It's like, well... well I can see how some people would do that, especially if it's like this, if you're breaking in in the middle of a letter pair and it makes a better com. I, yeah, yeah. The, the only way I could see that being good to do is if you know what comms everything is. Yes. And then like you can give yourself the best situation. Yeah, exactly. I can definitely see that. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're just using a Rosco, like you're pretty much just doing a priority list for the most part. Yeah, like well, you're with probably going. You should always cycle break to your Rosco helper. helper piece. Yeah, 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 totally. Because then you basically skip that letter. Yep. Yeah. So, but yes, you can specify an order. So as long as you always follow your priority order, then you will be right. When I do practice on it, I never specify my priority order just because I just want to do practice. I don't care mm-hmm. if it matches exactly how I would normally memo it. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a good thing to do, I guess. <laughs> I can see, though, if you were down to, like, just a two-cycle left, you probably don't have... Like, at least for me personally, when I have, like, a just a two-cycle left and three-blind... Yeah, then it's hard to spe- no like always go to the same piece because yeah, I'll probably pick whichever I see first. Yeah, it's not like you're gonna go through all your entire priority list in order. Right. It's like oh, okay, everything's solved. This is solved. That's solved. That's solved. That's solved. Okay, that's also solved. You're not gonna look at all yeah. those pieces. You're just gonna be like, I feel like I didn't solve that yet. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> right, and maybe you did, or yeah, it's just it's a matter more of what you find first rather than yeah. uh what your like priorities are. Another interesting thing I've been trying, I started considering was, what if I trace my first two pieces? Well, this is a trick I learned from Antoine Canton. Mm -hmm. Um, You can trace your first two pieces, but not memo them, and then memo the rest of them, and then visual those first two pieces, Mm. like, right at the end, before you start executing. So what's interesting is I actually sometimes do that with my, if I have a cycle break at the end, and it's like a two-cycle. Is, is, wait, do you visual the last one? The last yeah. pieces? See, his trick is you visual the first two targets. Right, and that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. It's, <laughs> the reason but the thing sometimes is, it's I slower. do it, it is. Yeah. So I didn't want to do that because I was like, that's slower. I, I want to be faster. But I was like, what if I visual the first two and I put my fingers on them and then I trace the rest? So I don't have to retrace them to know where they are and I can just start executing. I wasn't able to come up with a good way to do that because as I trace the rest of the cube, I kind of put other fingers down. And I'm like, wait, what am I doing now? So that's uh, kind of what I actually do on four blind with centers. Yeah. Um, because I don't want to um, audio like 16 to 18 targets every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to use audio for like the beginning of my execution. So mm-hmm. I pass through my first eight four blind center targets. And then the ninth one, I start a sentence memo. Okay. And then I go back and redo the first day audio. That's pretty smart. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, definitely not the fastest way to do it. But I, it does take advantage of audio for me, because I don't you, think I'd you be... You could able... also, like, if you used a Rosco, you could do audio corners, because that's center safe. Exactly, yeah, I could do... Yeah, that would also help. Which is, if that's I... probably what I... That's what I'm planning to do. Right. Which, is also, which also makes me want to maybe do audio corners for 3x3, three because three, it'll be consistent. Um, True. <laughs> 
And I feel like maybe that'll help slightly, but I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Come in. Okay. Did you leave? Oh, no, I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> I just heard someone knocking on your door, so I was just joking. I'd be like, come in. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> was there I not someone hear... knocking at your door? Not that I know of. Oh, I heard like a... Huh. It's <laughs> weird. <laughs> you must have kicked something. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought you were letting someone into your... <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. I was trying to listen intently to see what who's coming into your room. No, I just took the opportunity for a, to take a sip of water. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, maybe I heard the water bottle like hit, like crash against your desk or something. Uh, I'm just drinking out of a glass, so. Our bl- oh yeah, know. that maybe that, that was the sound. I think it, I think it hit twice when you, you like hit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, yeah, I, it was something like that. <laughs> I think I'm going crazy. I think we probably should. It's also possible. Well, we have a recording, so we'll be able to prove it if you are. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I just realized um, this room is dark. Really? Yeah. Do you not have lights? <laughs> well, I, I've been sitting in this chair and since I went to go take a shit, and uh, it was light when I got back before. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm wearing headphones and don't want to get up and turn on the lights. So you're just sitting there in the dark. Yeah, there's not a single light on except the TV and this computer screen in my house right now. <laughs> wow. Is yeah. it also like really hot in there because you haven't had the oh, AC on? Oh, it is on? hot as hell in here right now. <laughs> That's kind of another reason I'm ready to So you've just been get. sitting in a hot, dark room talking to yourself? Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure the axe murder is going to come in at any time now. <laughs> All right. Well, we should probably end the podcast before that happens, so that so that like they can't incriminate themselves or whatever by what they say. Uh, just oh, to make sure. You know, what? I'm glad that you're thinking of the axe yeah, murderer. Yeah, we got to protect the axe murderer's identity. <laughs> you can cover up all the evidence. Yep. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> you know what? Thanks. For, thanks for looking out for him. I really appreciate that you're uh, so forward thinking, Andrew. Yep. I'm here for you, Dave. Uh, that's his name, you... by the way. I hired him. Um, what? Sorry, um, what? All right. Uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks or something. Uh, or maybe you won't. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Bye, everyone. It's been wonderful. Bye, Kit. <laughs> <laughs>